0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas.
1: Powered by U-Mobile. 5G now with you.
0: Good morning, you're listening to The Breakfast Grill. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. Immigration is most commonly discussed through the lens of the emigre seeking a way into a new land, and the rules put in place to secure borders from those deemed undesirable to enter the country. But another less explored approach approach of looking at immigration control is to consider the impact on the receiving society and whether the costs of exchanging freedom for secure borders is ultimately what we as a society want. And that's the Thesis of Immigration and Freedom, a book authored by Professor Chandran Kukatas, Dean of the School of Social Sciences at the Singapore Management University. He joins me on the show today to peel away some of the layers of this very complex immigration (coughs) onion. Chandran, good morning. Thanks very much for joining me.
1: Thank you, Shazana. It's good to be
0: here. Immigration is a hot-button topic for various reasons, and a society can hold contradictory views about immigration all at the same time. Um, I mean, just off the top of my head, the example that I think about is, uh, for example, refugee situations, where in Europe we see that um, refugees from Ukraine currently are, are very much welcomed, while refugees from um, the Middle East, for example, receive less a less warm welcome. So from your observations, what factors influence whether immigration is viewed positively or negatively? in any given circumstance?
1: Well, the first and most obvious point to make is that within any society, some people will view immigration positively and some people negatively. In part, this will depend on how they're impacted, but sometimes it has to do with uh, factors like uh, you know age, uh, your family circumstances, your own particular cultural traditions, know whether you're more of a a nationalist or more of a cosmopolitan all of these things will make a make a difference so government policy is not always necessarily a reflection of uh, the majority view in singapore for example i think the government on the whole is much more open to immigration uh whereas the, the the general populace is more wary of it but then as you say um Particular circumstances can also change things. For example, you mentioned the Ukraine crisis. Clearly, countries in the surrounding areas, in Poland, for example, there's a very strong sense that these are these are your fellows, and so there was a strong sense of uh, openness to Ukrainian immigration, which is not the case for uh, their (coughs) attitudes towards immigration from Syria, which is also complicated by the fact that there is a certain fear of. Um, Islamic immigration. So I think you know ac- across the world, it, the attitudes vary quite a bit. Uh, the other thing that probably worth bearing in mind is that uh, for European countries there is a, a long history of uh, colonialism, which has a significant impact on both immigration patterns and attitudes to immigration. For example, in the in the UK, you've got uh, a country that you know, up until the early 1960s, uh, ruled over quite a substantial empire, which had, you know, maybe between 400 and 800 million people, all of whom were, in fact, British subjects. Now, in, in that case, there couldn't be immigration from these regions to the United Kingdom because they were, in fact, British nationals. But all of this changed. For some people in Britain, um, these people were always a part of uh, the UK. Movement was taken to be, you know, something that was uh, that was normal, particularly if it came from Australia and New Zealand and South Africa. But even from India and Southeast Asia, that was, you know, accepted. On the other hand, ha- um, things did change over the seventies and eighties when immigration rules became more restrictive. Government policy sometimes is shaped not by what the majority think, but what by what critical minorities think, because they have a, a bearing on the government's electoral fortunes.
0: For me, you highlight just how complex the issue of immigration is and one of the fraught areas really is in terms of categorizing people as natives and o- outsiders, which is really the essential um, element of immigration control. You need to un- you need to define who exactly is native and and who are the people who want to come in. What are your observations of how this exercise is problematic in practice? Why is that so um, difficult and sensitive?
1: It's it's difficult really because people differ on. Uh, on, on this particular question, who is a native? So if you took, for example, um, the example I've just given you, uh, the UK, <clears throat> you know, around uh, 1945, about 800 million people were classified as as Britons. So what subsequent government uh, legislation did was reclassified people so that In various parts of the world they ceased to be British citizens. Some of this was under the um, pressure of independence movements, but most of these movements didn't want their countrymen to cease to hold British nationality. They simply wanted independence from British rule. For many years after independence, countries in the Commonwealth still classified those people as having the right of abode in the United Kingdom. So Classification was a way of, in fact, controlling uh, the movement of people. And sometimes this means, in effect, expelling people from your membership, whether literally by deporting them or simply by definition. Now, for some people, and you can see this in the parliamentary debates, this was wrong because they saw this as racially motivated. Um, But for others, it was essential because otherwise too many people would have the right of abode in the United Kingdom. To take a different example, in the United States, for much of its history, large portions of its population were considered not citizens. And so, in effect, aliens, African Americans, for example, until quite late in the 19th century, were not eligible for citizenship, nor were Native Americans or American Indians, um, which is a bit ironic that Native Americans were not classified as, uh, as natives. So one thing about immigration policy is that it's highly dependent on the way in which countries decide to, to classify people.
0: Hmm.
1: To give you a slightly different sort of example, what happens if you marry a foreigner? Now, my sister who married a Briton found that her children would not be classified as Malaysian citizens. Um, because she was married to someone who was uh, not a native in the United Kingdom, uh, until relatively recently, until the 1980s, if uh, if a British man married uh, a non-Briton, his children became British, but if a British woman married a foreigner, her children did not become British. So her children would have had to migrate and apply to become British British citizens. So the, the, these things. Very, quite a lot, and um, the <clears throat> the nature of the law reflects a range of things from you know the mores of the society at the time, mm. the interests of political parties, and so on. it's 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 really quite a complicated issue.
0: How have multicultural societies then adapted? to enlarge in that circle of who they consider natives? You gave a lot of examples about how certain classes of people weren't considered citizens of certain countries. Um, What's the process of, I guess, opening that circle to a larger group?
1: I don't think there's any single process. I think what happens really is that um, um, under pressure from different uh, sorts of interests, Governments change policy in order to make, for example, citizenship more or less accessible. To take the Australian case, um, until I think around 2003, if you took another nationality um, as an Australian, you lost your Australian nationality. You could not be a dual citizen. This law was changed because it turned out that this unfairly disadvantaged Australian-born citizens because if you were say an American citizen who took out Australian citizenship the US would not revoke your American citizenship so you had all kinds of people who had dual citizenship but Australians did not so you know this is an example of one way in which the, the government decided to to broaden the scope of uh, of citizenship mm. um you know but you can consider there might be other things whether it's uh, age it could be race, you know, it could be uh, length of uh, time in the country and so on. So the, the laws are full of uh, exemptions. Let me give you one which is uh, curious. In 1981, when the Falkland Islanders applied to be recognized as British citizens, the, the UK government said no. Um, the next year, Argentina invaded the Falkland Islands. sent centre forced there to... Uh, repel the attack. The following year, they passed a revision to the British uh, Nationality Act, which said the Falkland Islanders were British citizens. Um, Why? Well, you know, go figure. I mean, nothing has changed about the nature of the Falkland Islanders, um, but uh, in effect, it was an ex post facto way of uh, saying, yes, we were protecting our citizens. That's why we invaded Um, uh, the island. Mm
0: -hmm. So it just shows how amorphous the definition of who is native, who is citizen can be and um, really the question arises of who has the power to determine what uh, these categories or classifications are. I'm speaking to Professor Chandran Kukatas, author of the book Immigration and Freedom. We'll have more from this conversation after the break. BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. Thanks for staying tuned to The Breakfast Grill. I'm Shazana Mokhtar, and on the show with me today is Professor Chandran Kukathas. He's the author of the book Immigration and Freedom. He's also the Dean at the School of Social Sciences of the Singapore Management University. I want to turn to um, the premise of your book, in which you argue that immigration control actually impinges on the liberties of people in the state. And I think that's um, a little bit different from the conventional rationale for control as a means to secure borders to ensure sovereignty, safety and freedom for the people of the state. I mean why did you decide to look at it from a freedom standpoint?
1: It was really a, a bit by, by accident. I thought when I started working on the book that I would write a more straightforward work putting the case for uh, for open borders. Uh, and I was thinking about it really from the perspective of immigrants or would-be immigrants. But then when I started to look at the, uh, uh, the laws and regulations, one of the things that struck me immediately was that, of course, since most migration is for the purposes of work, it struck me as odd that employers could be prevented from hiring whoever they wanted. Now, particularly in countries which uh, emphasize the importance of individual freedom, why are employers told that you can't employ a certain kind of uh, person? You um, know, Particularly if that is going to be to your advantage, uh, shouldn't you be free to hire? So when I looked at this a little bit more closely, <clears throat> I uh, realized that there are actually many other ways in which citizens or natives or nationals um were disadvantaged by the immigration laws because um, the laws in preventing people from moving or taking up work or enjoying any one of a range of rights that natives or nationals or citizens enjoyed, you simply had to restrict uh, those who were within your own society. Then when I looked into it a bit more closely, I realized there were all kinds of ways in which citizens are controlled in order to prevent them from interacting in unapproved ways with non-citizens. So for example, if you come to the UK uh, as a non-national to visit, uh, let's say, your children and grandchildren, if you are found to be babysitting while your uh, daughter or son goes to work, you're actually in breach of the law because you're Potentially taking away the uh, livelihood of someone who could be paid to be babysitter, and there are actual cases of people being deported for this. Same is true in the uh, in the US. Now, leave aside the impact of this on the uh, on the grandmother, or, you know, aunt or uncle. Um, just think of the impact of uh, the family. British family or American family, this is a burden that they bear. So as I started to look into this, I just found more and more examples of this sort of thing, which uh, impacts on the the freedom of citizens.
0: Mm, And it's not a perspective that we look at naturally, because a lot of the times we think immigration control, we look at it in terms of whether a person can enter into a country or not. But um, it is, I I found a very, uh, it was a very novel exercise to look at how indirectly we are all affected by the types of immigration laws that are put into practice. I want to bring up um, an argument uh, that, in in support of immigration control. I mean, it can be argued that it's um it's a solution to an economic problem. You know, we countries have to do this because um, scarce resources need to be allocated. Uh, the most efficient and maybe the most fair way to do so is on the basis of immigration laws. Uh, you know, understanding who is in the circle and who's not. But in your book, you weren't convinced by the economic benefits in support of immigration control. I mean, what are the flaws that you see in this?
1: Um, the the main arguments advanced, especially in. Uh, in, in western liberal democracies for controlling immigration on economic grounds is the protection of the the more vulnerable people in the in the labor market the argument is that immigration by the global poor will mean that the local poor will be outcompeted in the workforce in which case While it's all very well for wealthy or upper middle class people to gain the benefits of uh, cheap labor, they can hire gardeners and cooks and cleaners. Um, But this takes away from the employment prospects of those at the bottom end of the local population. I I think the evidence of this is uh, at best mixed, but for the most part, it doesn't take into account the, the advantages that immigration of this sort Brings to those who are poorer off. In part, this is because you can f- divide immigrants into two kinds from an economics and labor market perspective. One is immigrants whose labor is a substitute for the labor of uh, domestic workforce, um, in which case they would compete and possibly outcompete the, the locals. On the other hand, immigrant labor could be complementary rather than substitute. That is to say, These are immigrants who have skills which aren't to be found uh, in the host country or maybe not found in sufficient quantity. If so, what they do is they supply uh, labor skills and talents that are unavailable, enabling the society to expand its need for, for labor because they can now run businesses and enterprises they couldn't before. Most people moving have a mixture of both of these uh, capacities. They've got skills that are substitutes for other skills there. They've got skills that are complementary. So the question is, what is the overall impact of uh, labor migration? Does it mean that people are put out of work? Yes, it does, because some people will be outcompeted. competed. Does it mean that more people will be put out of work overall? Well, not necessarily, because the expansion of the complementary labor force means that there's more work for everyone. So you may lose out in one job, but you may get another. So economists have spent a lot of time working on this question to see what is the overall impact. And generally the conclusions are that either it makes a very, very small marginal difference to the disadvantage of the local labor force, or it makes a small um, difference to the advantage of that labor force. So on the whole, it's probably neutral. There may be times when it's to the locals' advantage. There may be times when it's to the locals' disadvantage. One can never tell uh, with these things. In the long run, I think the evidence is overwhelmingly that the, the effects are, are positive. Mm. So from the policy point of view, what you've got to decide is um, to what extent do you want to make this um, your primary concern? Uh, when thinking about the um, um, the immigration policies you've you've got mm. but in my reading of the evidence, on the whole there's not you know enough of an economic argument to warrant um, closing um, or reducing the level of immigration. Mm.
0: And Chandran, you don't make any prescriptions in your book about what immigration control should look like. Is this mm-hmm. an acknowledgement that there really is no ideal, that the right balance is actually quite impossible to achieve?
1: As I said before, when I set out to write the book, I thought I would simply write a book on uh, open borders. This is a, a term of art. It's often uh, used. And in the end, I'm I'm very sympathetic to the idea of making immigration as open as possible. At the same time, I thought, well, if I simply say that, um, for one thing, I would lose audience. But for another thing, it's not actually clear what it would mean to just have borders um, open because there are all kinds of uh, ways in which immigration uh, is controlled. And much of it has little to do with whether or not people can cross a border. It's really to do with what kinds of rights people have once they enter a society. Do you have the right to work, for example? This is the most important thing. Do you have a pathway to citizenship, for example? Um, And here I thought, well, you know, different societies are going to have very, very different reasons for shaping the policy differently. For example, if you take Singapore, in some ways it has a very open... Um, immigration stance, because you know nearly 40% of the Singapore um, working population is uh, immigrant. So it has a very, very high volume of immigration. On the other hand, the pathway to citizenship is very constrained. You could be here for 20 years and not get even um, the right to permanent residence, let alone citizenship. And the government is very particular about what kinds of people it's going to allow to have a larger uh, number of rights within the society. So I thought it would be um, difficult to simply make an argument for a one-size-fits-all policy, Mm. even though in general I would counsel more freedom. um, I think when you're making public policy, you have to be very attentive to local circumstances, to... Conditions, the kind of society you are in, mm. political realities, and so on. So I thought, rather than um, you know give hostage to fortune by making very explicit uh, universal prescriptions, it will be wiser just to examine the logic of the case rather than uh, look for you know a range of policy prescriptions, mm. which might well change you know in a year or two when circumstances change.
0: And final question, then Chandran, what trends in um, immigration control at the moment do you find particularly concerning? So your book is chock full of examples of how immigration controls have um, wreaked havoc on on in different countries and in different time periods. But in today's world, I mean, are there any particular currents in immigration discourse that um, give you cause for concern and that we should be that we should monitor more closely?
1: I think in in the years to come, we're simply going to see more and more immigration, more and more um, movement, because um, the world is simply becoming more and more interdependent. As countries become wealthier, the the kinds of movement you'll see will, will change. But movement will continue because people will continue to interact uh, and to a greater and greater extent. So my concern is more that As this uh, happens, governments will be concerned more and more to try to shape and control this movement of people. Uh, To a significant extent, this is already quite normal so that, for example, in countries like the Philippines, you can't actually emigrate without government permission. You can go on holiday, but if you actually want to go somewhere else to work, you need government permission. What I'm concerned about is the extent to which the attempt to control, legalize, regularize immigration will have an effect not so much on the volume of immigration, uh, but on the extent to which the societies we live in will be more and more monitored, surveilled, controlled. And the impact of this in the long term, I think, is what I'm you know, more concerned about. I don't know where it will go in the end, but uh, my, my worry is that people we'll get more used to being controlled. Uh, And at that point, I think uh, the society will change and not for the better.
0: Chandran, thank you very much for a very insightful conversation and lots of food for thought uh, on this issue. Uh, Thank you for your time today.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure being here.
0: I've been speaking to Professor Chandran Kukatas, author of the book Immigration and Freedom. This has been The Breakfast Grill on BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM
1: 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.